Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today lives in Lesotho, South Africa, where as a child she was suffering from the effects of a rare illness. That illness was only diagnosed much later. Here to tell her story of her journey with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is Natabalang Ramoedi. Natabalang, you're very welcome to this call. I know that it is one o'clock in the morning for you, so we're very honored that you've taken the time to have this conversation. Welcome. Thank you very much. I am very pleased to be here, and I'm excited to see where the conversation goes. I want to start our conversation from before the diagnosis of your rare condition. What was it like as a child with this condition? I was a child living in Lesotho. It's very complicated, but Lesotho is a small country within South Africa, engulfed entirely, landlocked. And it was quite, it's quite, quite cold, actually. The climate is quite ridiculous for an African country. It can get to like minus 10 which is really weird considering most people think Africa is quite warm. Not the case for me. So (laughs) growing up, winters were the worst worst for me because my joints would always hurt and I didn't understand why. I would have excessive pain that no one else understood or related to. And in fact, to some degree, I think I came off as a hypochondriac to a lot of people. People just thought, oh, this child just likes over-exaggerating. But it was weird because I would overdress, so it wouldn't be just me saying that I'm cold. I would actually look like I'm an Eskimo, and people would be looking at me like, are you sure you're okay? Because I was a very tiny child, but I would always wear too many clothes. That was the most, I think, a symptom one would have picked up early then. But unfortunately, it was just passed on as, you know, just a child who overdresses. And then... I think I had my first dislocation of the jaws around 13, 12, thereabout. And still then, I still didn't think it was caused by a condition. I just thought that was the most excruciating pain I'll ever have in my entire life. And I didn't know what that was. And yeah, you know, growing up, it wasn't really, people didn't really pay attention to how certain things happen until I was about 15, 16. And now not only the jaws came out. And now I would have dislocation of the shoulder, the elbow, and et cetera, et cetera. And then I think the one thing that alarmed me outside the joints, because then after that, I think I went to a doctor and the doctor's like, this is not normal. You can't be having a dislocation without falling off a building or having an impact of some sort that's actually excessive. So you can't just wake up and your joint is out. That's not normal. And that was like alarming for me. Like, okay, now what does that mean? Because I literally wake up in the morning and something has moved out of position. It's not like I fall off a bed or anything like that. From there on, I started having like excessive reactions to things. For example, this one time I had a bean soup that I was tasting and my stomach grew instantly. And it was huge. I looked pregnant instantly and I didn't know what was going on with me. So that was probably the most excruciating memory. And as per usual, the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. It was just that, okay, what's going on with this child that keeps having problems? And I think everything got worse. 2010, I was in varsity. 
my body was just giving up on me. I'm guessing I was supposed to, I was, yeah, 18, 19, and my body was supposed to be strong, and it wasn't, it was not strong at all. It was just giving up on me entirely. Not long after, I ended up in ICU. And that story is quite horrific because people don't want to tell me the entire story because I think I got into a coma. I think I was in a coma for like a couple of weeks. I don't, I'm not really sure of the exact timeline, but it was more than two weeks, I believe. And when I woke up, which is funny, till today, I feel like I had a, well, what people call the near death experience when you see the white light and there's that you either stay or you leave kind of option. And I don't know why, really, I still wonder, why did I choose to stay? Because I'm sure the other way would have been better because after that a lot of problems came up but I did wake up eventually thinking that I was having a sleep paralysis and the next thing I heard was a nurse telling me if you move an inch further and start and don't stop moving around and screaming I will tie your entire body down because my hands and feet were tied I think I was having seizures so it only made sense for me to be tied to the bed while I was in a coma I just remember waking up and a doctor coming in saying, darling, it's okay, you're in hospital, calm down. And I woke up and I was under, I don't know, 20-something machines and I just looked around me and I didn't know what the heck was happening. I didn't know my name, let alone my parents' names. So I had temporary amnesia at the time and my life literally was flipped upside down. And unfortunately, even though I was awake I had no idea what was going on and they still had no diagnosis so it was pointless like why are we here like for me was I don't have my memory the the doctors don't know what's going on but I'm awake so that the journey thereafter was a long one a very very long journey thank you for for many people living with a condition that isn't easily diagnosed where they have dislocations, comas, it's would be very difficult in even a country that had a lot of medical infrastructure, investigations, expertise. What was it like for you and your family living in a place where those things were not so easily taken for granted? Or is it possible that you had a lot of those things, but people didn't recognize them? Actually, that's a good question. Um, the medical infrastructure in Lesotho specifically is non-existent. It's even years, well, it's been, what, over 10 years now since my diagnosis. Unfortunately, patients are still struggling today to get diagnosis. They still need to go outside the country to get proper diagnosis because the infrastructure doesn't exist within the country. So it wasn't easy. And obviously, the most common thing you would get from doctors going in prior before my coma intake, I was still going to the doctor because something was obviously wrong with me. And I would always get, you know, maybe she's a hypochondriac or complete misdiagnosis where they look at one specific symptom. For example, a cardiologist will look at the heart issue or a neurologist will look at the brain issue not realizing that they're all catalyst of the one of one thing. So that was really, really hard. And I honestly don't know how anybody would survive without having medical insurance. Um, we call it medical aid, the side of the world. So it's basically the same thing as medical insurance. We wear 
private institutional medical services would not provide any services if you don't have money, which obviously we lack. Nobody has that kind of money running around, honestly speaking, unless you do have the medical insurance or the medical aid available for the tests that are ran. And even the doctors themselves, I don't think they're always waiting to hear about a rare condition. It's always the, the first thing is that, no, you don't fall under this criteria. You don't fall under this criteria. Therefore, we don't know what's going wrong with you. Or they will just simply give you the nearest best thing. And then that's when you're misdiagnosed. Now, the living with a misdiagnosis is the, is the, is the hell because you take medication and you don't even know they're making you worse because now you are basically treating a wrong condition. And in fact, I feel like being named, this is going to sound crazy, but I feel like name, being named a hypochondriac would somewhat be better because that way at least you're not getting help, fine, but you're not also consuming the wrong things. You're not consuming the wrong medication at that time. Because sometimes I believe when you consume the wrong medication for the wrong problem, you might be making yourself way worse than you were, you know, at first hand where you didn't know what was going on with you. There is no winning, to be honest, until you get a proper diagnosis. And yes, like you mentioned, but this part of the world, we don't have a guarantee of one actually getting a proper diagnosis. In fact, most people die without a diagnosis. And so I am very blessed that that wasn't the case with me and how I will talk about how I got the diagnosis. It wasn't because of a doctor within where I am. It was a bit complicated and half of the the work was done by me personally doing research. So I could safely say I diagnosed myself and got a doctor to confirm it rather, which is the same doctor that called me a hypochondriac. So afterwards they had to come and be clean and say, I apologize for calling you hypochondriac. The only thing is that I've only seen this condition in the medical book once and I'd never seen anybody with it. So I never really thought about it and I apologize for it. I want to explore how that diagnosis was made and how the treatment was corrected. But before we do that, you've hit on a really, really important point. And that is that in medical school, most medical schools will teach about the 200 common conditions. So you happen to live in Africa, they, they will teach you about malaria, they will teach you about conditions that are common in Africa, and of which there's a list of a couple of hundred. But of course, there are in the medical textbooks, and even not in the medical textbooks now, online, 10,000 conditions that we know about, at least science has identified. For patients who are living in places like Lesotho and other places which are far-flung, and I would argue that this is also true of people who live in the middle of a European city, the challenge is that the doctor you are seeing is only ever going to have vaguely heard about this condition, if at all. And of course, one in seven people have a rare condition. So in fact, there are many people who are going to be walking around with a, with a diagnosis that's either wrong or are being labelled a hypochondriac or similar. And I'm going to ask you a difficult question. What do you think can be done to stop that happening in the first place? 
Oof, this one is a very difficult because it could go from, you know, <laughs> the basic of like getting people open to learning. I think this is going to be contrary to doctors or the medical system itself. I believe if doctors are willing to be educated about these conditions actually existing in the first place, I believe they would be more inquisitive to knowing that there must be more than the 200 they get. They've been taught and themselves wanting to be open to having trainings. And also what I, I believe doctors need to have a network. A network in the sense of if you go to an eye doctor, for example, such as myself, because I wore glasses since I was like three, four, I believe that if that eye doctor was curious enough, they would have picked up something wrong about my eyes and connected it to maybe my neurologist later on in life to say, okay, no, as much as you've got this neuro issue or like say, for example, neuropsychopathy, you keep falling. Have you, why, why do you wear glasses? Can I have your ophthalmologist details so that I can check how your eyes are? And then if I do say, they're giving, they even open up for me to ask, do you have other conditions other than your eyes, for example? And I'm like, yeah, well, I've been told my heart has got some sort of issue. Then they start calling each other up and I feel like it's going to cut a lot of problems. And eventually they'll be like, there's no way one person could have both eye issues brain issues and a heart issue at the same time what could this be what could have been faulty then they'll realize for example in my case that it's a connective tissue disorder and they're like ah no the faultiness is identical in the eye as it is in the heart as it is in the brain so the issue is the connective tissue and ultimately they'll pick up the diagnosis quite earlier but the problem is with everyday life i think it doesn't matter where you're in a third world country or in a first world country more specialists stick to themselves like you are that patient for the heart and they don't communicate with the rest of the the other piles of people that you see right they don't even ask you if you see other doctors other themselves and i feel like that would be a number one goal where there's a network of specialists if the like the first thing you're asked who do you see other than myself medically then you can say oh by the way when i was little i started i used to go to an ent I have issues with my nose nose or whatever. You see, it comes quickly and then you don't waste as much time getting a diagnosis. And even you don't, don't see that. Because, I mean, I didn't realize that there was a connection to all of these problems until very later on when I'm now after the, the whole ICU thing. Then I'm like, no, man, whatever's wrong in my joints is probably the same thing that's wrong in my eyes. But that came later on. I never understood that. So that's number one, the, the, the network with the medical doctors. And also if advocates, medical advocates could hold hands with doctors instead of it being a push of who knows better than the other, which is very annoying. Number two, you know, where advocates can actually work together in a polite manner to teach and say, you can't know everything, but these people are patients who work and deal with this particular condition on a daily basis hear them out, know this, educate yourself about this. So it is a very difficult question, but these are the few things we could put out. And I feel like there's also a network of other people involved as well, like, you know, how the WHO can make it a thing that rare conditions should be given ultimate attention, and which is something that the UN resolution is trying to do since 20. 20- 2021 when they came out with the resolution for 
persons living with rare conditions. So if that gets pushed in in every agenda when it comes to health, that could help a lot. Well, that's basically the aim for the next couple of years, where now people are aware that these conditions are a thing and they teach and learn more about them. Yeah, I think those are the three things I think would help. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I like those ideas and the idea of the network involving advocates and sharing information, but I'm still a little bit troubled by this because there's so much to learn even once you leave medical school about those 200 conditions because science is constantly reinventing itself and becoming sophisticated in how we manage diabetes, for example, or heart disease or cancer, some of the more common things. And I do wonder whether, in fact, the other thing that is there to help us today is artificial intelligence, in that you plug in a bunch of symptoms the patient may have, and it is now likely that a computer will throw up some diagnosis that you didn't even think about before. Have you explored that in any way? That honestly has been exploded well we I started exploring it in due to the UN resolution. It's new and we're trying to work towards it and yes, where you now type in certain certain symptoms and then it gives you like for example, gives you a summary of five or ten that could be falling under and then you go deep into what those ten mean and then you're like, mm, okay, out of the ten, there's two basically would kind of make sense. So you even narrow it down to a doctor and be like, look, I've done this part for myself, but I guess we'll have to test for these two and then see which one comes up, which is very, I feel like it's going to cut a lot of issues compared to 10 years ago. And, and that's for me is beautiful. For example, I, in my case, I guess the first two things I would get would be EDS, um, lupus, because they've got similar symptoms. The only difference between a lupus patient and an EDS patient would be the dislocations of joints. But everything else, if you don't know the difference between the two, they're both neuro, neuro, yeah, they're both muscle-related and they're both joint-related. And you probably have the and with the lupus is that EDS patients don't have the butterfly rush, so it'd be like, okay, I don't have the butterfly rush, so maybe it is EDS, not lupus. So that would be I'm just using this too because that is more or less what I live with and I, I understand so yes the artificial intelligence route can work and I'm pretty sure for those who have, have like now exercised it have seen results which are quite impressive compared to how stuck we've been for the past couple of years so yes I am one with that I feel like it is going to let's say in the next five years is going to definitely reduce more deaths due to not knowing what's wrong with us, like due to lack of diagnosis and also the misdiagnosis itself. So, I mean, if you, you're now looking in battling between three conditions, the doctor finding out which, which one out of the three is probably easier than having a bracket of 6,000 rare conditions and you have no idea <laughs> which one it is. So uh, narrowing it down to three is, is great. I mean, it's a blessing and a half. And then also, you know how we have the rare conditions that are called often conditions where now they don't even have a name. 
then you can at least say, well, we see your symptoms and sorry, out of everything we've gotten, there's nothing coming to mind as to what you have. So then we know it really isn't often a rare condition and it's not been seen before. You're probably not just one in a million, you're one in what, a billion. So until we get someone else like you. So those those that will narrow down a lot of things and I believe it would go a longer way in compared to where we are today, which I believe, I mean, in five years is probably far. Probably in the next three years, it would be well known to every medical professional. I see a lot of change, even just with having conversation with people who are open enough to know that these kind of conditions do exist. And in Africa, it's quite hard because we have to battle with the medical issue versus superstitious stuff and people thinking maybe the patient is bewitched or there's a lack of ritual that wasn't done. So it's like karma of some sort to the family, which is crazy. But imagine on top of you having a medical condition that you have to convince people you are not bewitched. It's, it's crazy stuff. So with this, I'm hoping people can get more open-minded to be taught. And I mean, with artificial intelligence, they can actually go and see and research on their own without people saying anything and not even going to a doctor. They can do the research on that one before they go to a medical doctor to, to confirm that diagnosis to be true. Yes. And that is the other big part of the story that I wanted to explore with you. The fact that you made the diagnosis in many ways yourself. Talk a little bit about that. I think everything should start from after the coma because then that's when things got really heated up. After the coma, I remember my doctor at the time, she was a lovely lady and she looked at everything she tried. I think I had over 300 or something tests done to me and they all came back negative. And she remember looking, I remember her looking at me and another neurologist coming in and like, child, we have no idea what is wrong with you. And this is not to say we haven't tried because everything comes back negative. And then there's one doctor that was like, I don't know why, but I feel like whatever you have may be one of those rare instances. But then even being the fact that you're here, the test would cost an arm and a leg because we don't really have the test running here. We'd have probably have to send it somewhere else. And but he didn't say anything about what he thinks it might be. He just said it probably one of those genetic conditions that we needed to do genetic testing. And then what they said next was, perhaps we should take you to, uh, which is very funny, a mental institution of some sort. And her thing was, it's not that you're mad or you've got mental issues. We, have, we believe they have better neurological machines there. I was like, okay, makes sense. Because they wanted to narrow, narrow out the brain being the issue. So I went to this hospital. Which was funny because I didn't even know, yes, I was very uneducated much about um, mental health. So I didn't even know what anxiety was. Yes, I I, I really didn't because I didn't have it. I never struggled with it. So it was never anything that I went into. So I remember one time in one of the classes we had over us seeing a psychologist every day. They were talking about anxiety and I'm like, wait, it feels like a heart attack, guys. But it's not. They're like, yes, you have these palpitations you feel like your world you're clocking out you're having difficulty breathing and I'm just like that must be horrible because I never witnessed it like I've had 
difficulty in breathing, but I literally couldn't breathe. <laughs> and I've had palpitations in my chest and the actual palpitations, it's not something, it's like a fragment of something that happened before. And I was like, okay, is that why I'm, I'm in this, am I, is it why I'm in this hospital to learn more about things that are not necessarily talked about in the everyday life? Because we left the hospital and I was, I remember Dr. Tell, the, the psychologist telling me, or she was a psychiatrist, I'm not pretty sure. She said to me, there's nothing wrong with your mind, love, but there's something wrong with your brain. And we still can't tap into what it is that's wrong. So that gave me confidence that, okay, something is wrong, but nobody seems to know about it. I started doing a lot of research. So I, every test that I've done, I took it and started reading about it. And then I remember there's a doctor when I was in high school who said something, your joints are hypermobile. So I took that as like, okay, I'm going to start looking for any condition that relates to people with hypermobile joints because I was very bendy as a child. So that was one thing. And I was like, okay, what is there out there? But then I got into a group that was an EDS group. And then this lady from South Africa noticed that I was from Lesotho and she was like, love, if you are from Lesotho and I'm struggling with a daughter in South Africa, how are you coping? As like, not coping really. So there was doctors within this particular network from Canada and America, I believe, that I sent my request to in this network. And I was like, I believe I have this condition, but I don't have a basis or framework to confirm that I do have it. So one of the doctors, I'm not sure if the one from Canada or America wrote a prognosis so that I could give to a doctor within where I was. I was in Botswana at that particular time. And she's like, no, take this to a doctor, tell them to follow it up and then talk to us if they have any questions. And then they can confirm that this, but using the, is it the Benton test? I forgot how to pronounce it. But yes, where they check how, how bendy you are, whatever. It's quite easy test. But if you don't know about it, you won't pick it up. I did that test. I got nine out of nine, which is very rare because with EDS, five out of nine is enough. You don't even have to go to nine. And I had nine out of nine, which was beautiful because then I could say to the lady, see, it wasn't, it wasn't all in my head, which wasn't the game really. It wasn't really about proving a point. It was more of, yes, you're not crazy. You actually are sick. Now, the diagnosis was done. And the question is, now what? You've got this condition. Now what? Nobody in your vicinity that knows anything about it. Your doctor just told you they only saw it once in a textbook. And they forgot about it. Now, who's going to take care of you in terms of your medical needs? It never stopped. It wasn't a relief. It was, yes, you have a name, but what can they do? So I had to continually study EDS, research EDS, do my own findings with, you know, I started doing elimination diet for myself, where instead of anything that went wrong, gastrically, I would eliminate it out of my diet. Here we are. A couple of years later, now there's more people with the condition. In fact, not, not long ago, I had a, in the NGO, I created a patient with EDS with very similar symptoms. And she's very young. And I'm like, I'm actually envious of you. I wish I was a you. Because you have someone to tell you what's wrong with you. You have someone to tell you what to do. You don't have any worry. You know, you can just call and say, this happened am I supposed to do ABC or just go to the doctor about it? Which is not the privilege I had, but I guess everybody's journey in this life is different. The story that you've told 
is very familiar to our listeners because for many patients with rare disease, they do end up making the diagnosis themselves and guiding healthcare to offer the most appropriate treatment. I want to pivot now to where you are currently, where your work is taking you currently. I know that you've sent, set up a non-government organization. Tell us a little bit about that and how we can help your cause. Everything we've done is out of pocket to help all the patients we've helped so far, which I think for a young institution such as ourselves, we've done a good job, if I may say so myself. Uh, whether it's just helping people get diagnosed or giving support to the families or actual have making sure they get like transplants or just, you know, every day making sure that we fight for their rights when they go to the medical facilities. We've done a lot, but we could do more if there was funding. I mean, with a rare condition, who has the time? You're literally going, you're getting the medical aid because you can die tomorrow. So <laughs> I find it very, very weird how things are, you know, organized. And 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 honestly speaking, only 15% of Basotho can afford to have a medical aid, realistically speaking, because of the, the amount of money they get on a daily basis. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough support. We're getting better in terms of now people are willing to listen and hear us out. Radio or other mediums, or TV, there's more awareness. This this year's Rare Disease Day was quite celebrated in all ways. I, I, I commanded it was the best out of all the five years we've been existing, but we're still way behind. Your story resonates around the world, and it's really heartwarming that you've managed to achieve as much as you have with the limited resources that you have at your disposal. You're making a difference not only to patients in Africa, South Africa and Lesotho, but around the world, because many of the things that you've talked about are also relevant in other parts of the world where you would expect there to be more resources. Patients face similar challenges. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, your 1 a.m. and my 11 a.m. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to being here and having this conversation. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.